Hello and welcome back to another instalment of Spoken Not Stirred podcast. I am your host, Dauda Ladajobi. On this episode, we have the amazing Jake Wildhall. He's going to be taking us through a little bit about his journey and also his journey with Bad Betty Press, who we've heard quite a lot about in a previous podcast. As always, at the end, Jake gives us an amazing prompt for anyone else who wants to get right in. So, without any more delay, let's get straight into it. Welcome, welcome, welcome to Spoken Not Stirred. Right, we've got we've got a um we've got we've got quite a special guest today because like I'm pretty sure the last, if not three, but definitely the last two podcasts, um, you've been you've been mentioned, Jake. You and Bad Bet Press have been have been shouted out and rightfully so we love to see it i'm just talking under my breath but that doesn't really work for a podcast does it like if i say something like this no one's gonna hear it do you know what i mean (laughs) but yeah yeah anyways we're here now we're here now um i am here with jake wildhall who is one half of bad betty press i was also a bad boy poet bad boy poet like Really and truly, Jake obviously was um, our last feature. I just wanted to like understand, I guess, a little bit more about your inspiration because you're you're dope, but your trajectory seems a bit different now. I guess it's like, what is your focus? What is it that your your last performance? I can't lie, man. That was a different Jake, you know. That was a different Jake. Like when we first had you on, I'm um, doing Solomon, Solomon's World. Like, yeah, obviously, what was that? Two years ago now? No, three years. Yeah, yeah. Like it, was, it was when it was when we first started. Really, you was one of our first um, features. You and your grandma, I think. Yeah, my grand, my grand. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. And I knew about the night. I think because of Anne McCauley, who also knows my grand. Yeah, Just yeah. Small world. It was Anne that got your your grand on, and I was like, and then she was like, oh. That's Jake's and I was like, yes, it was. But yeah, the, but my point being, when you was doing Solomon's World, when you come on that tour, obviously, like, it was clear you was in a different, different stage mentally with your life than the performance that we had, you know, the other day. So if if you don't want to, if it's not too much, do you want to just kind of delve into that? Um, and the, just the changes and what kind of drove, I guess, that. Yeah. So I think, um, when I just two different writers really so uh, and also like uh perspective and uh distance from mental health trouble so when i wrote solomon's world i well when i wrote a lot of the poems that are in solomon's world not all of them i had just uh started a new relationship uh the relationship i'm currently in now and you know, there is a bit of a journey in it and there's a bit of a discussion in it. Um, and I was thinking a lot about different stuff, but also at that time, I just started doing uh, like uh, group therapy for uh, giving up drugs, basically. Uh, and I was just getting clean and moving house and having my first like proper rented place where I had to put down a deposit and my life was changing quite dramatically. Um but I, and I think it's more fun, um, that book. I think it's, in a way, there's more fun in it and there's more about, like, I don't think that makes it good or bad. I just think uh, I, 
I was in quite a joyful place and I am in a I, I'm in a mentally better place now but then I was in like you know the honeymoon period of a relationship plus I was getting clean so those first couple of months when you're clean you really just you don't look back so much so um and when you're kind of like dealing with that process of getting better uh your mental health wise you're not looking back at the start you're looking forward you know um and then I think blank so me and my partner had said, oh, should we put out a pamphlet at the same time together and do a joint launch? And I said, yeah. And then I'd written some of the poems, like some of the poems in blank are older. So like blank is, was the first written piece that was written just after Solomon's world. And kind of that started me writing some pieces that are the discussion of me looking back uh, over a period of my life when my mental health was very bad and my addictions were very bad so like uh like I smoked a lot of weed uh but also I had a period where I was taking pharmaceuticals and then a lot of ketamine and so I got clean completely clean I stopped everything uh I occasionally drank uh I stopped drinking even for a while there was a year where I only drank for like three weeks of the year which was like mad for me uh and now I drink just at the weekends so I have control over the things I do as opposed to having complete abstinence from everything there's still stuff I would never touch again but I don't I like I've been I was clean for four and a half nearly five years and I'm just working on having control and having control over myself. I started running, which is like my main addiction now. Anyway, sorry, uh, I won't go on too much of a tangent, but yeah, so when I wrote blank, I was looking at that past me and writing about it, but also um, my uncle died the year I wrote blank. So the first poem in it is called Him and it's about grief. So it's kind of a collection about grief and how that lives with us uh when i was seven my dad died and this is something i think i want to write about more the idea of uh grief and how it's kind of a collected issue so like uh how can i explain it like i think of it as like a russian doll right so when someone dies uh and you this person has died the person on the outside and you unbox it and then you're also dealing with all the other people who have ever died in your life. Because when someone dies, you think of death and you think of grief and you begin grieving for everyone. At least I do. I don't know if everyone's like that, but from conversations I've had, people are similar. And when you think about death and when we think about death, uh, we grieve for it for a lot more than just that one person who has died. Uh, and so there's a lot about that. And I guess in a way, looking at those those past griefs and kind of for the first time in my life, I think taking a, a proper look because I was in a mentally good place. Like I was in a much mentally better place when my uncle died. Obviously after he died, I was distraught. Um, I was very sad, but mentally I was stronger than I had ever been because I got clean. I had started looking at my mental health, had been to a bit of therapy. I'd looked after myself. I changed my life. I was adulting I was doing things that I always wanted to do I was ticking stuff off my list you know um everything was in a better place so then I you start looking at those griefs but you also start looking at your past self and who you were when you were dealing with, with them and why you couldn't deal with them so like I don't think 
until my uncle died and I started unpacking a lot of those past griefs, I had never really fully dealt with them. Um, and I think that's the difference. I think Solomon's world is this person who's just becoming a new person, like a, a and a hopeful person, uh, and like the joy of that and the joy of new love, which is nice and obviously, uh, beautiful in a way and then when I wrote blank I was really kind of more introspective and asking questions of myself that I needed to ask questions of myself and it was kind of the book I've kind of always needed to write uh, and wanted to write and it it's been difficult writing since because I felt like I dealt with a lot of the stuff that I had never dealt with when I wrote it um, and that was a big deal for me. And now it's kind of difficult. It's like, where do I go next? Because I've kind of found a different, I am a different person now and I've achieved a lot of the things I said I wanted to achieve and I've, I've got healthy and, uh, you know, Boyega, right? Mm. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, yeah. So Boyega said to me, he said to me, obviously you will write again. He said, and he said, look at the Tyler, the creator trajectory. He said, like, look at Tyler from, like, obviously it's not the same. I'm not comparing myself to Tyler. But, like, the trajectory as an artist, the complete change from, say, Goblin all the way to then, like, Flower Boy, you know? And he's he, completely different artist, completely changed himself, became a different person, that coming of age. And I guess, uh, like, obviously I've gone past blank now, but that's what I'm looking at when I'm looking at what's next. Who am I now? Um and some of the poems I write still feel very much in that place of being introspective to who I was. And so it's kind of like working past that and kind of finding the next body of work and what is it honestly and what does it mean to me? Does, no, that, that, that does make sense. And that, that is like, it really does come out. It, it does come out in just kind of, even the performance element of it of like, it was just so much more reflective and you're right, Solomon's World had that element of fun, um, whereas Blank obviously had that reflectiveness. And I think the setting as well for Blank was like, if say we was, say we, we was, I don't know, like back now in, in a bar and you was to do, you was to read Blank, you used to do a set of Blank, do you think you could put that same energy? Or do you think, because I feel like maybe the day as well, I think maybe the day was also quite, it worked so much for the performance, but I feel like the emotion of the day um, uh, carried your performance with Blank as well. But I was just, with regards to, I guess, more on the performance side, do you think that is something that you would keep? You would keep that kind of serene and that kind of, um, yeah, did that reflectiveness. Is that how you would want it to be perceived on the performance side as well? Yeah, 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 yeah. I want, I want it to seem... Um, I want it to seem reflective. I want it to seem like we're having a conversation, uh, especially about grief. One of the things that when I toured blank and when I was like going up and down the country, it, the, the hardest thing is like I normally end on that poem, the one about my granddad and grief. And I had a lot of conversations about grief. Um, and I had to kind of G myself up to that because it was like every night, every night where I had a gig and there were like 20 plus gigs, it was someone would come up and be like, oh, you know, my granddad's just died. And I'll be like, oh, do you want to talk about it? 
and it was quite heavy but then I was like oh okay it's it's something that we need to talk about and I'm happy to do that because I don't think if I was wasn't happy to do that I wouldn't but also I try to still have a journey like I think when I'm in a live space and there's an audience in front of me I try and be a little playful as well. Like I try and tell a few jokes. I try and make a bit of humor about it because it is, it's a big, it's always big subjects. It's like, oh, you know, one poem, I'm talking about grief. One talk, I'm talking about my addiction. One, I'm talking about the relationship between me and my dad and his, his alcoholism, you know? So like, I'm talking about these things constantly in your face, <laughs> you know, like I'm here and you're there and we have this connection but actually I don't want you to sit through 25 minutes of me being sad. That's not kind of what it's about. Like I'm not even trying to make you sad. I'm just trying to say we change and there's hope and there's beauty. So like I always try and put a bit of humor and take it on a bit of a ride and try and not make it. And I think I'm better with when there's an audience and I can do a little bit of jokes, like especially if I'm doing something like uh, I think less so when I'm, I, I still do the jokes and have the fun in a poetry gig, right? But uh, their poets are more ready to cry, you know? We're like, oh, I want to be sad. Make me sad. Uh, but, like, if I'm doing a sofa, I, I come and the first thing I'm dropping is jokes. And then I'll read some of the old stuff and then bring it forward to the newer stuff. So And then I'll make jokes in between. Like, the last time I did a sofa, I got someone up and we had, like, a sock competition who was wearing the best socks um, and I was wearing these, I was wearing these Mario socks with the fish, you know, the fish that jumps out the water <laughs> yeah. I them and I absolutely bodied him. I was like, if you beat me, you can have a free book. I was like, now you have to buy the book. Do you know what I mean? So, um, what did him? <laughs> um, but yeah, I think I want, I want people to know, like, I'm not just a, a sad boy. Like I am obviously like I am sad and I still suffer from depression and I'm still sad but also that's part of it that's part of life right it's ups and downs you know and that's okay and it's okay to be like yo this thing is really sad and let's reflect on it but the next thing I'm going to say to you is a stupid pun you know like it's okay to live in both those worlds and it's okay for me to kind of and sometimes as well, it's a nice drop into the reflection to mm -hmm. be making the joke and to be like having the banter with the audience and then just to be like, here's a somber poem, think about it. You know, <laughs> like, and you see what, how different audiences react. I'm being really long-winded and I hope that's okay. But No, it's perfect. It's what we want. We want to, we want to get, <laughs> get everything that's getting on in there. And I love how you, um, because I've, I've like, with, with, if anyone isn't aware with um so far shows, it's like um you would have three performers and there's there's music involved as well. And I think as a poet, when you're doing, um usually it's the poets that will come first. Like I've done I've done so far as a poet and I've also done it with my band as well. So nice. it's like, you know, I, I, that dynamic is it's definitely different as a poet. And I understand that element of like bringing yourself into it and the jokes into it and getting the audience involved. So far is so. It's so meant for that, you know, that like they can be quite intimate, but audiences like are, are very key on that. As a performer then, like what 
do you think is the most important thing? Like, regardless what is you're performing and who is you're performing to, what do you think is, what would you want your audience to take away from your performances? Yo, that's a big question. Um, I think, uh, I think the most important thing as an artist, right? Like whether we're talking about performing or writing is authenticity, right? So, and that's, that's the thing that I think artists like try to achieve all the time. Like, whatever music I'm making, whatever I'm doing, whatever poetry I'm writing, that is authentically who I am. And this is part of the thing about the the jokes and the reflection and the sadness on the same set. It's, it's not like someone came up to me once after a gig um, and was like, oh, I love the character you are on stage. And I was I was like, ha, 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 ha. And someone, someone was like, it's not a character. That's just like, that's just who who that is like and I want people I feel like as well I guess part of the reason I don't know I would have to ask the people who talk to me but part of the reason people felt they could come up to me and be like yo my granddad just died is because I talk about grief and then I'll just be like yo uh, you know me and Indiana Jones we fell into a snake pit and I was like we're facing serpent death do you know what I mean? Like, I'll say that and then I'll do a poem about my uncle dying and I want people to know that, like... <laughs> oh, it's just because I saw that on your Facebook status this morning, yeah. <laughs> so I knew what the fuck that was going to be. <laughs> I'm just dying. I don't think of myself, uh, like, as, as, as some, like, otherworldly, artistly being... And I don't know, like, I don't think of myself very highly. I just want to start conversations and I like people and I like the conversations that are started. And, you know, that's why I run nights. That's why I run a press because, you know, my conversation is one thing, but how many more conversations can we have? And I like it. If people don't think I'm like the best poet they've ever seen, I don't mind. But if they think they can come up to me and have a conversation about, something that happened to them or their drug addiction like i'm i'm here you know like that's that's it like um i, I think that does come out a lot in um just everything you do obviously we're, we're going to talk about um bad Bated press but also boomerang as well boomerang is um uh, you run alongside antonia j king uh yeah. peter DeGraff johnson aka the repeat beat poet Tyrone Lewis and Joel Orterson. So it's oh, the famous five. Oh, collective. I knew about yeah. um, PJ and um, Antonio um, and Tyrone also. Yeah. Sick. So, yeah, I think from a lot of what you do, like, I get the impression of you, you want to share stories. Like, and, and I feel like it's hard to explain it because I, 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 I vibe very much with the way you operate, like, of everything you do. Like, even uh, Bad Betty Press, like, giving other people a platform. Like, I don't think, like, I don't think it's an easy thing to do. I don't think it's like, um, especially as a performer yourself, I think it's very hard sometimes to then have to champion other people, sometimes way over yourself. Like, I've, so do you have, do you have that? Let's, let's talk about Bad Bay Press. When you were starting it, what was your initial thought, like, behind it? What, what was your driving, um, driving thought behind starting Bad Bay Press? Do you know what the crazy thing is? Like, I, I obviously, I spend a lot of time championing people now, but what happened is 
I was getting a pamphlet ready. I was working on Solomon's World. I wanted to have a pamphlet out. It was always something I wanted to do. I was like, this is the next step. This is the thing I'm going to do. Then I'm going to talk. Boom. I haven't done it. I want to do it. I'm going to do it. And my partner, Amy, just was editing it. She's a fantastic editor. She And she enjoyed it. And we said, oh, should we just start a press and do it ourselves? And then we started contacting people who we know who we thought were dope, who we thought are ready for a book. Uh, uh, and we were like, yeah, this is a lot of fun. And we were about, to, <laughs> this is crazy, but it's true. We were about to have Billy, who's our first child, but my second. Um, and we thought, oh, we're going to have loads of time. So we, on our hands, because you're not going to be working because you're going to be on maternity leave, right? So we'll start a poetry press because having a child is easy like i didn't learn from the first one um and so we started a poetry press um and then it kind of just went from there like so it was it was like oh i'll do this book that i'm doing and then joel's book was next and then we had submissions and then we were like let's apply for arts council funding we probably won't get it to do a book of poems on mental health and that's where dizziness of freedom happened which is like 52 poets um you know like varying degrees but all fantastic so like Lemsey say Dean Atta, Selena Godden big big names Rob Orton like all the all the people and a real mix as well of like uh spoken word and page whatever there's no difference but you know like the traditional we put them all in one book together. So we had people like Selena, who I guess would live in the more spoken world or stage world, if if you want to make that whatever. And then people like R.A. Villanueva, who who won the Costa Prize for poetry, uh, and people like Lem Sisse, who obviously has had a massive career, people like Luke Kennard, then people like Dean Atta. Um, so it was nice to go, we're going to bring these two worlds together and I think that was part of it to go um, to to start saying they're not different. They're not different. Um, and the best people in this world are as good as the best people in this world. And the people in this world are going to change the game for the people in this world. Um, and when I say that, I mean, I think there's a whole kind of untapped way in which an audience especially a live audience is gratified by uh poets who have had a performance based career because we we learn to give to our audience like i started in theater as well so you have to provide for them right and i think uh, we see it with poets like Harry Baker, who will set like 200 people will come to his gig, you know, like people like Rob Orton. Um, and these are big, big gigs, even like Denez, who, who we know, like Denez, they are massive in the book world. But Denez started as a slam poet in the American slam championship. They they came third, I think, one year and now they're they are winning prizes for their books and so it's like when this world when you stop 
belittle in this world because of classism, essentially classism and racism, let's be honest, um, then you're going to realize these people are as talented as you and that's what you're afraid of. Um, because when people say spoken word or, or when they say the stage, it's often uh, like this comes from rap. This comes from... Uh, uh, from working class cultures, this comes from black cultures, and that is other to us, to this, to this world, which is doing better. It is doing better, but we are talking about a traditionally white middle to upper class world. Um, and obviously, there is through history, uh, like uh, instances where that is not true, and obviously, there are poets that were. I think it's Yates who was at the, t uh, is it Yates? I think it's Yates who someone told me was on at the time because he, he was seen as too cockney and too working class for the other poets. I think it's Yates, but I might be wrong, but it's one of the big, like the big poets who everyone, there was an article which came out, which was like, I think it was Yates. Yates would be turning in his grave and someone was like, yo, Yates would, on for being too working class so like when people don't even know their history of poetry and like they want to hold this thing and be like this is our thing but it's not your thing it's not your thing it's everyone's thing get over it get over it we're done yeah. out here <laughs> <laughs> it's, that, it's that feeling of like i art low heart and it pisses me off with poetry it really does it really does get to me because it's like it's for me the difference is just someone is choosing to put more performance into their poem that is all the difference between stage and pages for me is because a page poet can perform their poem and therefore mm. it becomes performance poetry but um this is so interesting i feel like this is a this is a thing that is like maybe more for us as as traditional performance poets i think it's something that we do touch upon quite a lot because um this is a conversation that I've had <laughs> quite a lot. It just naturally flows into these conversations, especially in the podcast where like that distinction, I don't know why we've had to make it, but I very much do believe it's a class class and racism thing. Um, I myself, when I started doing poetry, were told, was told I was rapping without a beat, which I, I mean, let, let me not, let me not get started. But um, Sorry, I'm, I'm just got, I just got caught into that. You made such a good point. I'm just like, yeah, yes, Jake. <laughs> um, but yeah, so going back to um, you know, bad bad petty, right? And that notion of now, you know, you you put your pamphlet out, you and um, your partner enjoy the process. Um, and obviously that that even that book is what was it? Dizziness of consciousness was it? Dizziness of freedom. Dizziness of dizziness of freedom. Yeah, yeah. So it's a it's a shortened version of a Kierkegaard quote. So the dizziness of freedom is oh, it's something, and it's about anxiety. So it's like uh, like the it's, and it's about like the freedom of society. I I can't remember. I can't remember. But it's a really good quote. And it, it you know like Kierkegaard wasn't perfect, obviously, because no philosophers were. Um, but it's a really good quote, and it's a it's a shortening of the quote. Uh, I'll, I'll, yeah, it's yeah, no, no, we'll, we'll, we'll get the quote. I'll, 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 I'll do a segment before and after this. So I'll, I'll put the quote in anyway. Um, but yeah, so you've done all that. You've got this um, strong book that's come out, and like it's all building now. What? Where was the point where you're like, 
well, this is it now. We're going, we're going to have to make this a thing and we're providing the service now definitely for the poetry world. And then how do you then balance doing all of that with then being like, I want to put my book out and I want to just go tour it. I want to do all of this. Like, where, how do you find that balance? Um, it's, it's very difficult. It's the honest answer. <laughs> uh, um, so it... So after dizziness, we had submissions from loads of people. Some of them got in the book and some of them didn't. But we, uh, and we also had a submissions window. So we had found one person from our submissions window who we really liked. Um, and then there were people, some of who were in dizziness, who submitted uh, young authors. We, we were like, we really like these authors and we want to start working with them. So that first year, I think it was um, Phoebe Wagner, uh, Gabriel Acamo, Boyega Banjo, AJ, who actually didn't submit, but I had noticed like a massive change in AJ's writing and I was super excited about it. So I said, let's start going to... So was that for she too is a sailor? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So she was coming to Boomerang for a long time and the first poem she was doing was still fantastic performance pieces, but I think she'll tell you now that she will never perform them again um, because she's in a different world and she came and she did that poem, She Too Is A Sailor. And I was like, this is fantastic. Um, and the one, uh, the ballad of those dreading Christmas as well. And she was coming to Boomerang and I was like, Rare, this is a real change. This is like... Wow. And so we sat down every week in a Costa. I was just like, you're going to be sick. You're going to be sick. And we sat down every week in a Costa and I would bring her books uh, and give her writing tips and sit down and edit the poems. I said, we'll get you a manuscript ready and we'll publish it if it's good enough. And so we just sat down for a year and then Amy took it and obviously polished it and made it perfect. And they had their relationship. But yeah, like, I don't know. I really love... I really loved that bit um, of finding these poets who had submitted to us for Disney, some of them who got in, some of them who didn't, and going, we really like their work, we want to read a manuscript of them, and we want to publish them. Um, because at that point, we weren't getting loads of submissions, we were still quite, it was our first year, and then we announced that, that second year, uh, and after dizziness, everything just grew and grew and grew. And then the submissions window just, just like blew up. Like they just went massive. Um, and finding balance was difficult. I, I find it hard to write anyway. Um, I think just making sure Amy has time to write has been really important and will always be really important. She's so fantastic. And she wants, that's what she wants to do. She wants to, and she will like write and release books because she is fantastic. Um, uh, and I really want to produce stuff. So actually at the start of last year, I had stepped down from Boomerang. Um, so yeah, finding balance of my writing was never really, it, it was difficult amy wise because she's doing a lot of work a lot of editing so like really difficult tasked work whereas i do a lot of dog's body work so i take books to the post office which is obviously long and laborious especially after brexit because now we have to fill out customs forms for everywhere in europe brexit 
Um, and so like for me, actually for me, it's been a really good creative outlet because I have got to produce work I believe in and I love producing. That's why I did Boomerang for so long for no money. Like we never had a budget except for the first six months we had a budget, but we didn't pay ourselves. We just paid acts more. And then we didn't have a budget. Um, like we never really been paid. Like we have a dinner once a year and I cook the dinner and it Boomerang pays for it. So like uh, we had like a big thanks like Thanksgiving American style dinner and I cooked it. But um, I get to produce the tours, you know, I get to take poets on tours. I go all across the country with poets. We go in an Airbnb, we have drinks afterwards. Like I took Boyega up to York and it was me, Boyega and like Rob Orton in an Airbnb with all the say out lads having a drink uh, and playing cards, you know, after a gig. And that's the bit I love. And so when I stepped down from Boomerang, it was actually going to be to apply for Arts Council funding to run big Bad Betty events. So we were looking at, um, there's a really cool arts organization, uh, which I hope is still there actually when the pandemic ends, uh, called, it's in Tottenham, it's called the Something Center. So we were looking at it, it's like a 300 cap venue. So we were looking at doing six events a year. Um, Bernie Grant's Arts Center. Yeah, so it's wicked in there. And we were looking at doing just six events a year, but big. So like a a big music artist or a big poet per one. And like, I, you know, my dream was to have, uh, to have, you know, like Josh Idahim, but as the band, like as, as the whole band, um, as Benign City, to have Lex maybe, to have Lex and more, or to have Tremendous, to have like a big hip hop act. And then like some Bad Betty poets, Boyega was going to DJ. And it's still hopefully a thing we're going to do, you know, but like to to also do these Bad Betty nights and have high literature readers. So like you might have like a, a Costa book winning writer, but then end the night on like a hip hop act and really go like, this is who we are in the world we live in. So in terms of balancing my writing, again, like I, I don't write as much as maybe I should, but I write as much as I want to. And I have an outlet to produce events and to produce work that I love from other people. And that is something I really love doing. So it's been difficult with no live events. That's been the hardest thing this last year with no live events. And obviously I don't want to take away from the benefits of uh, accessibility that Zoom has brought, and we will continue to do some sort of Zoom events and we will continue to do online stuff for the communities that we can't always provide for and for that connection it brings through the country. Um, but I love live events, man. And I, I it's, it's, it, I love getting people together and putting people in spaces and going, does this thing work and creating something beautiful. So, uh, yeah, it's, I, I haven't found the balance of writing hard. Uh, 
I just want to move towards just being an events producer for Bad Betty. Like, as like Outspoken has Outspoken Live, I want to do a Bad Betty version of that, basically. That's where next. And I honestly love working with people, like working with AJ for that year and watching the growth. And even now, like when I hear her write and I, I'm so proud, like I was there from here until here. And that's part of it. Like I'm hoping that people will stay on and release collections with us and stay with us like Tom Bland has. And I'm really hoping, you know, Joe Waterson and, you know, will definitely, because I know he's writing and I told him he has to promise me a collection. And all those people from the first year, like Gabriel, Carmo and Phoebe Wagner, Boyega, I mean, I wish he would stay with us, but he'd probably get published by Faber and we could never like begrudge him that because, you know, what what like just moves mad these days um it's a beast, <laughs> man it's a different beast <laughs> i seriously man the amount of times i've tried to book Bega, i've booked him a few times i just love booking him it's because he's from my ends as well he's from my ends he's from like yeah 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 this guy is a beast I'm, I'm sorry i just got excited man. <laughs> yeah and uh phoebe was on um on the podcast last um last month and uh antonio was on the podcast the month before like now this is why like there's so many there's so many artists that i am privy of that i know like you you have been so instrumental in what they do and it's like it's really nice to see you talking about it right now because you can see the passion in what you do you genuinely love it <laughs> like you genuinely love it like you you love um, discussing it. I'm going to put you in an awkward position. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And say, what is the least enjoyable thing in this whole process? Like, from producing, bad petty, writing, all of that. What is the least enjoyment? Uh, okay, I'll give you a couple of answers, right? Uh, I, I really hate writing invoices for one book. So, like... It's important for us. And we love people. We love we love bookshops buying one book off us. Please don't stop. Please don't stop. But, and, and like PBS, it's so vital that we sell these books. It's so vital, right? But, all right, so the, they get a discount, which they should get because they sell at a discount. I'm not complaining. But I will get, say like I get five of them, right? Or I get one. Say I get one, right? And it's for a pamphlet and they get a 40% discount. So what we're selling that pamphlet for three pounds, 60 plus postage. Yeah. And I have to sit there. I have to write the envelope. I have to put the book in it. I have to, I have to take it to the post box. Now I have to put a stamp on it. Then I have to come home and I have to do tippity tappity tippity tappity tippity tappity invoice. Then I have to send the invoice. Then if the invoice don't get paid, I have to follow up the invoice for £3.60 and you have to do it because it is vital and it is vital that we get those orders and we are privileged to get them and for bookshops to be buying off us but a lot of it is like a lot of work for a little bit of money and then and then after the money comes in everyone everyone's getting their their um their their royalties as well so like when you see that £3.60 come in another 10% of that goes to the author. Uh, so it's it's mad. It's a lot of work for a little bit of money, but we are blessed to mm. have 
these companies want to work with us and to buy books of us. And we're blessed to have Arts Council funding because uh, I don't know if we didn't have Arts Council funding, I, I just because that is the little bit of money that we get, like that keeps us afloat, that makes it affordable. Like it means that you, you know, like it's so expensive to live in London and we own a three bedroom house and we have a mortgage. So um, it's why the constant debate of like, do we move out of London? And so it's cheaper because if we got arts council funding, so now like our mortgage is expensive, it's, it's mad. So even the whole 15 grand, that would be maybe just about, no, it wouldn't even, it would be, no, it wouldn't. It would be, le even the whole 15 grand would be less than what our rent is for a year. But then that money pays uh, for author advances, for a tour, for the books. And so like at the end of it, I think we get between seven and nine grand, me and Amy as two people, uh, which sounds like a massive chunk, right? But then you've got to consider that six grand of that is gone straight to like to authors and to pay them for books. And when you apply, you have to apply and you have to, you have to account for how much you're going to earn. So the whole budget is actually like, 25 or something i don't know i don't do the numbers uh well i do the numbers but i don't think i don't write the project so like i do some of the maths because i'm good at maths but i don't like write the project grant so you've actually got to make money you've got to make oh they say oh yeah so you get this 15 grand but your whole project is actually 25 grand so you've got to make 10 grand and if you don't make that money the first person who's going to lose out is you because because there's no way i'm not paying my artists you know, so the people who work for us, who do work for us, they always have to be paid. And so you're at the end of the year, the first person to lose their money is going to be you. And so sometimes it's difficult. I will say that we've been very lucky and we've been very successful and the Arts Council are an absolute blessing and that having these organisations want to work with us with is a blessing. But it's, you know, like in the world we're in, in this poetry world, it's little, little, small, small. And sometimes that's difficult when you're sending out like 10, 15 invoices for three pounds 60, you know, like, and you have to do it. Like what's the, op what's the other option? Not do it. No, I can't not do it because I've got to pay royalties at the end of every year to those artists. So I have to have had that money <laughs> so I can pay the royalties. So it is time consuming and difficult. And it often means that, while Amy is currently working full time in a job and I'm working, we see each other very little. Um, and that's the hardest, really, the amount of time that we're in. And it's been especially hard during Corona because we've both been in the house working, but not seeing each other. And it's so hard living with a partner who you never see. Like we, and when we see each other, things are good. Like we're, we the more time we have together the better we are so being in a house not spending time together is tough um but we're gonna move we're gonna we're trying something new for the next year which is basically that i'm gonna go back to work full-time either chef or front of house so i'm hoping that i'll find a a, a restaurant to manage because i've got experience and that amy will work full-time on editing her own writing and Bad Betty. 
so just artistic instead of having to do advertising work uh, which is obviously pays the bills and means we live very nicely and I can't complain but it's not happy work you know like um, everything has pluses and minuses and we're going to give that a year and if that doesn't work out and she has to go back to advertising we probably will sell up and move up north or like at least to the midlands um and which is something i kind of want to do anyway because i want to move to an area and invest in it like i know it's slightly different in barking because like when i'm talking to Anne about it like it's an area that that it's not quite the same as like living like we live in london you know what i mean so it's like and obviously barking is london dagnum is london but like at the same time those areas like having that investment and having people work in them it would be kind of the same if we moved there and then we're like putting more money into those areas um hence why as well we were wanting to do something at bernie grants because we live in tottenham so we moved to tottenham uh obviously no ethical consumption under capitalism but we are two white people who have moved and bought a house in a predominantly uh black area a predominantly you know area and so uh when i was talking to aj about this man i'm bringing her up loads she was like just make sure you go to local shops like just make sure you go to shops in the area go to the little shop around your corner like as long as you can afford to just go and shop like we've got a wicked there's a uh, a supermarket called cinnamon leaf it's like a black owned supermarket so we try and shop in there when we can um and part of using Bernie Grants would be that then you're investing in the area. You're putting some of that Arts Council money back into the area. And Tottenham is a traditionally working class, like the population of it is as big as many cities outside of London. So as long as we can afford to stay here and we can find a way to invest back into the area in the same way we would if we say move to somewhere like Nottingham, where we would invest back in the area, um, then we'll stay. But if if we can't afford to, then we'll move, which would be sad. Yeah, yeah, and yeah, man. I like I love London, but I'm also like, for me, I have to live in London. I can't lie. I've tried living in other places. And where did you live? Where did you live? I've lived in um, Cambridge, and I've lived in Bristol. Um, Bristol's great, but it, I was working in like recruitment and the. The um, atmosphere and the people was very toxic. It was a lot of private school, um, yeah, private school educated, white, quite like middle upper class. So as like, um, you know, working class, black, uh, Nigerian, it wasn't, and you know, I wanted to be artist. Like even though I was doing recruitment, I did not want to like do corporate. So. London is a safe space for me. <laughs> like, it's a safe space. I, I feel very welcomed here. But I do feel like the rest of the country is also quite neglected. I'll, I'll just put it out there. Like, you know, maybe not so much Bristol, Liverpool, Manchester, but I feel like the rest of the UK is very neglected when it comes to, you know, the arts, when it comes to funding, when it comes to kind of investment. So, it, you know, it, it, it may not be the most ideal, but... To the other extent, you could be doing some good if you was in like Nottingham or you know, like so there's like you said, pluses and minuses definitely for, for that for that situation. Yeah, like we we've we've been getting on and I've, 
do you know what it is, Jakey? I can't lie. Like, you, I think you're sick. <laughs> like, like, I'm genuinely like a fan of yours, man. Like, I feel like the um, the work you put in for the scene is so crucial. But your Facebook and Twitter personas, yeah. Oh, I love it. I love it. But one thing, I, I mean, apart from the polls you was doing, like like through um through lockdown, you was there was ah oh, there was quite a few actually chocolate bars. Um, oh, what was the so yeah, bread, was... chocolate, bread, chocolate, cereal, uh, 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 condiments, condiments and dips. That one was wild. That was wild. And then uh, animated TV themes. And that as well. That was like, I'm, and like, I mean, like, I'm, 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 a, I'm, I'm a browser. Like, I scope a lot of things. I may have liked it, not here and there, but like, I just love seeing that. I love seeing all of these things that keeps people engaged, keeps like a community going. There's a lot of community in what you do. Um, but then the one thing that really, like, I was like, this guy is sick, man. So inspirational is the um, couch to five k, and how truthful you were with it as well, like. You was giving great updates and, you know, it was really inspirational to me. Like, I, I genuinely, genuinely, it was really inspirational to me. Can you give us, like, maybe a little bit of, like, you know, what inspired you to do it and how that's been for you? Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, yeah, running has changed my life. I hadn't, like, no joke. Uh, I started, I first did Couch to 5K last year. Uh, what happened is it was lockdown, obviously, and I... I always yo-yoed weight-wise, um, but I, my weight was bad and my health was bad. And I just, I kept going upstairs to read Billy stories and I just couldn't get through the book. Like my, I was out of breath from going upstairs and I was 18 and a half, 19 stone. I was big, like, uh, and obviously be whatever weight you want. I'm not here, but like I was unhealthy and I could feel it in my bones and then we came out of, we did, you know, all that yo-yoing in and out of lockdown. So I went back to work for a couple of weeks. And the, after the first day, my body was like giving up. And I was like, I'm done. I'm, I'm done. Like, I'm going to get healthy. That's it. I'm done. Like, I can't, I can't operate like this in the kitchen or front of house. I'm too unhealthy. I'm too tired. So I started running. But I was much heavier when I first started running. So I was like 18, 18 and a half, 19 stone. And so it just mashed up my knees. So we bought, I got a cross trainer and I carried on doing cardio and losing and losing and losing weight. Um, and then at the start of this year, my, uh, my friend Max had started running because I had started running last year. Uh, and he was like, oh, yeah, he, he was smashing it. And I was like, cool, I'm going to start running again. But I bought knee pads, I bought new running shoes. And obviously my knee didn't really hurt. I started couch to 5K from the beginning. I was like, I'm going to start it from the beginning. And it was much easier the second time. Like it was much easier the second time after losing some weight. Um, because it just doesn't hurt your knees as much. And I was fitter. I had been on the cross trainer. It was after Christmas. So I had put on a little bit of weight. Because, uh, you know, we eat at Christmas. We don't, you don't diet at Christmas. <laughs> nah, nah. <laughs> we'll be wrong to What do you mean? <laughs> um, so, yeah, it just, and then it just became a thing I, I, I had to do. And I had to complete. Um, 
and I just loved it. I loved it. I loved the indoor things. I loved getting through it. I love getting fitter. And you know, I do exercise. So I do some weights because I've got a set of weights and I do some abs, but I don't find it as, as like, it gets like running gets me out of my head. I'm just focused on this one thing. Like I'm just running and I'm ill at the moment. So I'm not running right now. Cause I actually, I noticed I was ill on Wednesday and I had like a sore throat and I was like, no, I'm going to run 6k. And I ran the 6k. And when I got home that evening, I was like, oh no, I'm really ill now. So, so now, and I've just got back from an injury. So I was just running again. Um, but yeah, like I just find it's hard. It's hard. It's not easy, but I really recommend couch to 5k, no matter what your fitness is even if you're fit and you're healthy and you can do it because the interval training is great and you start really slowly. So the first week you do, uh, so it's always, you start with five minutes walking and then you do 60 seconds running on the first week and then 60 seconds walking, 60 seconds running, 60 seconds walking, 60 seconds running. So if you're any sort of fit, which the second time I was, you'll just smash it and you'll feel great. And then the second week kicks in and you're du- you're like you're running for 50% more and you're like oh yeah it's a bit harder but it's not even that much harder because you've done the first week right so you're a different beast to the you were the first week and then by the fifth week you're running for 20 minutes straight and you're like five weeks ago what like five weeks ago who was i i was a different person so that is and now i've signed up for the marathon so i'm running the marathon in october so like I, hence why I'm a bit like itchy at the moment because I'm ill. So I know I can't run and I've got to run for 26.2 miles in October. Like I'm running for charity. So fingers crossed. I've, I've just come back from an injury as well. So like I got quite trigger happy after I finished couch to 5k, I was like, I'm going to run 10k. And I did, I ran 10k. So I finished couch to 5k and I was running, I was running further than 5k at that point because I got my speed up. So you're running for half an hour. So at that point, I was running six, six point five, including the walk. But then you're only really supposed to add on 10% every week, whether that's kilometers, miles, whatever distance you run in. If you're on Strava, you're probably running in miles. If you're on Nike running up, you're probably running on kilometers or time. So you can also go, I ran for half an hour. Next week, I'll run for 33 minutes. But every week, you're only really supposed to do 10% increase. And I ran a 10K in 59 minutes, which was like, was good. I was like, I'm really happy. (laughs) And my knee went. And instead of taking time off, I then was like, I ran 5K. And then I was like, "Uh, my knee's not that bad. And then I ran 8K. And I was like, oh, my knee's pretty bad. And then I went out drinking and I was super hungover and I got lost in central London, ended up in a cab somewhere. But like I took like 25,000 steps on my non-running day and I tried to run the next day and I was so hanging. I was hanging out of my ass. And I got to the 3K mark, yeah? And I was like, no, no, I'm not running anymore. And my body was like this. And then uh, I was, I had to take two weeks off because my knee was, I'd mashed up. I was wearing like low Dr. Martins and they had like ripped a hole in the back of my foot because they're brand new. 
And so I was bleeding in the back of my feet and I was like, all right, I'm going to heal. I'm going to take time off. So yeah, if you're doing it, the most difficult thing, if you complete couch to 5k and you want to run longer is limiting yourself because you have to limit yourself. And my friend is a weightlifter and he had already said to me, don't be stupid because he, he smashed his shoulder to pieces because he went from like some ridiculous weight to some ridiculous weight and just lifted it. And he was like, I did it. But then his shoulder, he couldn't lift anything for four weeks. You know, like he couldn't lift a plate. Mm-hmm. So he was like, don't push it when you're running. And I was like, okay, I'm going to push it. So that's the, because you feel like when you finish couch to 5k and when you've gone from you, I've never, I played football as a kid, but I was never a distance runner and I've been unhealthy for many years, you know? Um, and I like occasional smoker, like I'm a social smoker, like I have a cigarette and whatever. I try not to. Uh, and I'm now that I'm running the marathon, I, I, I smoke at work normally, but I had my first two weeks where I haven't smoked at work at all uh, because I know I'm running the marathon in October. So I was like, no, none tobacco, none, none of you, none, no, no more. Um, for me, sir. <laughs> <laughs> not today. Um, but yeah, I think the hardest thing is because you feel like you feel like God when you finish the 5k and you're like, I can do anything. Like I felt like that. When I was running that 10k, I knew on the 8k mark, I knew my knee was gone, but my cardio was fine. And even when I finished the 10k, I was like, I can run farther. I can, I can carry on. And my knee was like, no, you cannot. No, you cannot. No, you cannot. And then my knee continued telling me that I could not for two weeks. So yeah, just, just relax, I guess. Relax and don't push yourself to do stuff that you're not ready to because you because you think you can and that's the same that goes for everything for writing for everything like enough is sometimes enough like and listen to sense listen to sense amazing even that was a lesson in it so that's amazing man this is <laughs> like it's it's been like i said an inspiration it's been great to watch and obviously like the um, the physical effects like you look good. I mean, I don't, I'm not, I've, I've always like yo yoed and weight same way. And like, I'm, I've tried jogging before. I've actually got, a, I got a bike because I couldn't jog. I got a bike because I was like, I, I did 5k at one point actually. And I was like, okay, I have done it. I wouldn't want to do this continuously, <laughs> but I would happily cycle like 12 to 20 miles on a bike, like happily, you know? So I've, yeah, it's, it's, I think it's, I think that's also why I'm like, I was so in awe of your Couch to 5K of, of like being like, man, I've, I've tried jogging, man. Like, it's not easy. It's not easy. It's sick. So, yeah, man. And I'm all the best for the marathon. Good luck with the marathon because those are not easy. Those are not easy at all. Not easy at all. Right. Right. Just two more things before, before we wrap up. First is, um, you've said a lot of great names um, at the moment, you know, with regards to people from Bad Bait Press and people that you've kind of worked with. But are there any other names, any other people at the moment that you've kind of seen and you're like, yo, people need to check this person out. People need to know that they're doing something that's amazing. Is there anyone at the moment? Yeah, yeah, always, always, always. So, (laughs) um, obviously, uh, 
uh, Amy Aker. That's my partner. Um, but also, I think uh, one of the best writers without a collection out. Um, when the collection's out, one of the best writers with a collection out. Uh, work is everywhere. Work is everywhere. And over the next couple of months, it's going to be more everywhere. Uh, so keep an eye out. Uh, I've read a lot of books this year. I set myself a goal of reading 100 books um, on book 102. So the three best poetry collections I've read this year are well, four. Four things that I have read this Everything I've read poetry-wise has been phenomenal. So four things I've read by people who are established that I think if you haven't read, you should read are Eat or Will Boast Off by Victoria Kenethic, uh, which is a fantastic. Uh, what is This Thing Called Love by Kim Adonosio, uh, which is just perfect, a bit older. I think the collection is a bit older. Uh, Caroline Bird's recent one oh man what's it called the air year caroline bird the air year and probably the collection i thought i think personally is my favorite and the best thing i've read this year and obviously everyone's heard of him but poor by caleb femi is probably the best thing i've read this year and one of the best things i've read ever and i think that's because caleb is, I don't know, maybe one of the only writers I know uh, who will write about being in a trap house and make it as beautiful about, you know, the poem about flowers that you read in another collection, because he's that good. And he writes from a perspective we don't see often enough. Um, and then something by someone I don't think people, or less people would have heard of, is I discovered a poet through Twitter called Samantha Fain, uh, who has a book out called Coughing Up Planets and another book out called Sad Horse Music, which is all poems about Bojack. Uh, oh, amazing title. Sorry to cut you off there, but <laughs> amazing titles. Flipping hell. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Coughing Up Planets. Oh, sorry. Bad. And uh, the last person I'll shout out is Afro Kicks, who designed my shoes. Afro Kicks is an independent shoe designer She's dope, man. She designed shoes for Andrew Robertson, Liverpool left back. Like, she's amazing. She's working on at the moment, like Vans, and her partner's a brilliant part poet, Kariah. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And they, their Instagram, they're funny together. They're funny on Instagram, and uh, her shoes are dope. And uh, also, I love watching her Instagram and watching her work. So they're who I would recommend. That's a lot of names. I'm sorry. <laughs> oh, don't be. That's that's what we love to hear. That's yeah, sick, sick, sick. And yeah, man. Um, just touching on Caleb as well. I I like poetry and music, but what Caleb did with his poetry and music is one of the greatest things I've ever heard. I'm like seriously, no one's heard. I can't remember what the album's called. It, it was like two, three years old now. It's, it's the one that's produced by uh, Man of the Lake Kid, isn't it? It's called. Uh, it's it's like a play on bees, isn't it? It's uh, geez. Um, it's slughouse. It was it was what the when they first. Yeah, 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 yeah. So it was when they yeah, when they released that, and it was like, <sighs> man is also sick as well. To be fair, I mean this scene is just like I love I love the UK scene, and I love how involved you are. <laughs> and it's, it's 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 a beautiful beautiful thing at the moment. Um, thank you, thank you for the names, thank you for your time. Just one last thing. 
Is there any prompts that you've heard that you really like or any prompts that you like to give? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So this is one uh, that I heard from Anna Khan, but I believe she got it from Josh Judson, um, which is if you read a poem you don't like, take a pair of scissors to it if, if, if you've got a printout or even if you just really don't like it that much, you want to cut it out of the book. Cut every single word out or cross them out as you go along and make it into a new poem from all the words that are in the poem. So make a completely new poem, not about anything this poem is about. So a poem you dislike, a poem you dislike. If you read a poem you don't like, instead of criticizing it, which is fine, you can do critique if you want, uh, like take it, cut it up and make a new poem. Sick. I never thought of that. That's sick. Sick. Thank you. Thank you, Jake, man. And um, but yeah, seriously, I just want to say a massive thank you for your time now. Massive thank you for featuring um uh, in, in the last spoken not stirred as well. And yeah, yeah. Thank you, everyone who's listened. I, I think that's it. We'll, we'll, we'll wrap it up there, man. Thank you so much. Spoken Not Stirred is produced by Studio Free Arts and is funded by Arts Council England and the London Borough of Barking and Dagenham. For more information about our work, check out our website and our social media. Search for Studio Three Arts. Thank you.